We're going to carry on in the Lord's Prayer. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, it's on page 1528 on the Brown Bible. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. We got to this, um, this phrase, your kingdom come, which is the second um, petition, the second request in the prayer. Basically what I want to do today is to deal with this in in two hearts, essentially. I want us to think, first of all, about what is it that we're praying when we pray your kingdom come? Because I don't think it's, on the face of it, an immediately obvious thing. And then secondly, I want us to consider something of, of how it is that we can pray this. Uh, what are the, you could almost say, the preconditions? What needs to be true in our hearts in order for us to pray what Christ tells us to pray, your kingdom come? And beginning in a moment with what it is that we're praying, but I wanted to underline for you as we start. Part of the greater reason that we're wanting to look at the Lord's Prayer, um, certainly at this early stage in what we're doing here with the new church, is that I'm wanting us to, to see the foundational part that prayer plays. And I would say about this particular request, your kingdom come, that in a sense there's nothing more important um, for your part in in seeking to be a part of God's greater kingdom work, God's uh, mission on the earth, as it were, than that you learn what it means to pray this. I say that partly inspired by the example of Paul. And I want to just show you a few verses and just take a couple of minutes right at the start to take you through some of the verses that, that really underline for us the priority Paul placed on prayer as the center of his life's work on behalf of the kingdom and on behalf of the church. Over in Romans 1, you might want to flick along with me if, you've got, if you're quick enough. Um, in Romans 1, verse 9, Paul says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, hear those words, without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I find that all the more amazing, given that Paul had never even been to the church in Rome, and yet he said, I don't stop praying for you. It's, my, it's, the, it's the obsession of my prayer life, is that I'm praying for you guys in Rome. Then over in Ephesians 1, verse 15, it says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's the same kind of thing again, isn't it? Over in Ephesians 3, you can see the type of things that Paul prayed. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to his, the riches of his glory, he may grant you. And he goes on and he begins to enlarge on the kind of things that he prayed for when he thought about the churches that he planted. I find that an incredible thing that this man who was... Um, who was a pioneering missionary, written down for us his priority in prayer and the kinds of things that he wanted to pray. That ought to shape 
the way we pray also for the church when we get to read Paul's prayers. Over in Colossians, a few letters on from there, um, and verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And so, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You quickly get the impression, don't you, that prayer um, was a massive part of Paul's day-to-day life. um, He doesn't stop praying. It's it's an intense and a persistent thing. Over in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. Again and again, every single church, it seems, he he writes to them and says, my job is to pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every result for good and every work of faith by his power. And then over in uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 3. He says, I thank my God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you, and this is speaking to an individual now, not a church. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. We are getting the impression here of a man whose whose knees must have been worn out. Um, So intense was he in his prayer life. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, remember how Jesus speaks about John the Baptist. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Can I go that way, boy? It's a mummy. It's a little rebel, as you can see. Um, yeah. Do you remember how um, Jesus talks about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11? He says that the kingdom of God advances by force, or advances violently, and forceful or violent men take hold of it. I think you could obviously take that, that, that picture of what a forceful man looks like. I was just this week watching a couple of documentaries about um, Steve Jobs and his remarkable um, rise from nowhere as a businessman with a tenacious focus on what he wanted to achieve, building um, at one point the biggest company in the entire world um, through that sheer determination and tenacity. And I think that it's something like that that Jesus is talking about in the kingdom. But I would say that we need to give that a focus when we think about what is it in particular that characterizes forceful men who advance the kingdom. And I would say it's this. That it is a focus, as Paul's shown us, upon, upon an intense desire to pray and to keep bringing to God the needs and petitions for his kingdom to come. But what I'm trying to say to you is that this prayer, your kingdom come, is the central thing. In, in the whole prayer and in Christ's mission. To pray and to learn to pray this line in the Lord's Prayer is to, to work with God as a co-laborer in furthering his mission in the world. I think there's few things that could be more important than that. So what are we doing when we pray this? Let's unpack this. what it means to say your kingdom come. I want to say first of all that I think we're praying for, for blessing and for judgment. I know that this immediately is going to strike us as a slightly odd way to describe it. But Calvin, in his commentary about this, this particular line, he said that we're on the one hand, we're, we're praying for God's directing and empowering of his people by his spirit to show his goodness and mercy in the lives of his people, to show the world God's power and goodness and mercy through his people. That's the positive thing. 
And he said, on the other hand, we're praying, we're calling out on the living God to, um, to destroy sin and wickedness and evil in the world. Now, immediately when we begin to think about the God who is, on one hand, he's, he's for things, on the other hand, he's violently and, and, and passionately against things, I know that this runs massively against the, the, uh, the current of this world and what people want to think about God. It grates, doesn't it? But it fits with the biblical view of what a king is there to do. In Romans 13, Paul talks about governments, and he says that a government exists, on the one hand, to bless and promote all that is good in a kingdom. And on the other hand, it's there to be a terror to evil. If you don't have that power at work, protecting and shielding, then all you end up with is anarchy and chaos. So we understand that at an earthly level. So if we begin to think about this at the spiritual level, what are we talking about? Well, let's begin with the positive. That we're crying out when we say, your kingdom come. We're crying out to God for his blessing and empowering upon his people. Here's how. In Matthew chapter 17, or 16 actually, and at various other places in the Gospels, Jesus makes this uh, prediction to his, his, uh, his followers that they would see the kingdom of God come in power before they die. He says in Matthew 16, 28, he says, Truly I say to you, there are st- some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I know this verse has confused a lot of people over the, over the years because it sounds like Jesus is talking about the second coming. A lot of people have said, look, the disciples were clearly mistaken because Jesus predicted he'd come back again soon and they all believed that. But I don't think that's what that verse is about at all. The more obvious understanding of what Jesus is talking about is coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is what happened just a, a, a short number of weeks after he descended into heaven, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church in enormous power. And the church began to go from just the scene and then exploded into the kingdom that it now is. So what we're seeing is that God has always had this intention to, to work in and through his people. He has his ambassadors on the planet, who are his, his sort of, uh, co-laborers and workers on the planet, and he wants to pour out his spirit on his people. And to pray, your kingdom come, is to ask that God would pour out more of his power upon his people to do his work in the world. But the flip side to that, is Calvin was telling us to pray against evil, to ask that God would intervene in the world and to destroy sin and wickedness and everything that's bad. I know that a lot of people have a problem with this, I think, because... It seems to me that a lot of people want to say that God, just that God is love, but that He is all loving. That everything ought to come under His sort of, um, under the, the capacity of His love, so that He doesn't reject or, or, or show any anger towards anything. And yet, the same people in the world want to tell us, look, what is, what is it that, that God is in heaven, and yet we see so much evil on the planet? And I think we can't have it both ways. We can't have a God who is soft and weak and mushy and unable to deal with the problems in this world and yet and, and still cry out for him to do so. When we're praying this way, we're asking God to effect the kind of justice that we would want of any good human ruler on his kingdom on earth. And so that in essence I think is what we're coming to when we pray this. God, further your kingdom by empowering your people. 
and oppose and bring down every force of wickedness on the planet. This has both a personal and a cosmic sense to it. I wonder if we could just open the door. I'm Last week, I was talking about how when we're praying this, the Lord's Prayer, and when we're praying just in general, we can pray in these sort of concentric circles. You pray for yourself, your family, your church, your city, and the world. And I would say that that's a vital part of, of this particular part of the prayer, your kingdom come. That it has a personal element to it, that you're praying for yourself, and a cosmic element, that in, in praying your kingdom come, you're also praying for the world. And that we have to do both at the same time. The reason why we need to understand that it begins with us. Jesus, when he's talking about his kingdom, he was asked this question by the Pharisees. He asked them when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus answered them in Luke 17. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. He said, it's not, it's not going to look like how you've always thought the kingdom of God is going to look. It's not going to be me sat on the throne, riding a horse, conquering your enemies, so on and so on. He says, instead, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. But behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is a profound idea when we, when we begin to grasp it. But Jesus is saying that his kingdom is something out there in the world. It's rather something that is inhabiting people. And then, of course, overflows in their actions in the world. And all you need to do is, is read the story of the Bible and you begin to understand how this works. Look at how it all went wrong at the beginning. Look at how God made a world that he said, day after day, he, said, didn't, he looked at what he made and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And the entire cosmos was good. And then Adam and Eve, they sin, they fall into sin. And through the actions of just one man, one woman, all the destruction that we see in nature begins to, to work its way out. So you see that humanity, in a sense, is the pivot, the fulcrum on which so much that is good or so much that is evil swings in creation. It goes wrong there in Genesis uh, 2 and 3, but then you begin to see how God affects a turnaround plan, and he doesn't do it. This is what's interesting about it. God could just speak the word and, and change creation. He could just change the universe. I think that's a lot of what a lot of people want him to do. But always God decides to work through people. So when he wants to start a new rescue plan, he doesn't just um, start stepping himself and clean the world up. He calls a man called Abraham and says, I want you to be the father of a people who will worship me. And through them, I'm going to start blessing the whole world. In other words, I'm going to build my kingdom in people. That reaches its ultimate climax, of course, in Jesus, um, the greatest son of Abraham. And then it, it begins to explode through his church. The reason why I say this is because I'm saying, when you pray this prayer, your kingdom come, there's a part of our mind that wants to think about something, something so big that it's almost beyond our grasp. And there's, there's truth to that. God's kingdom is universal in its dimensions. It's not something that you can just put in a box and contain. But it always begins in the human heart. It always begins in your response, in my response to the living God. And then how we begin personally to surrender our lives to him, to his word and his call.
So when we pray this prayer, what can we It's first and foremost a prayer of submission. It's a prayer in which you're, you're saying, God, fill me, and you could even say, God, fill me and kill me. Fill me with your spirit so that I can more and more begin to affect your work in the world. And then kill me in the sense that you would kill every part of me that wants to oppose you, rebel against you, work against you. Do you see what I'm saying? It begins in you as, a, as an individual. And then it's a prayer of intercession. A prayer of submission, a submission to God personally before it's a prayer of intercession on behalf of, of the world, and on behalf of this city of London, on behalf of your family and friends and so on. And one more thing I want to say about this in terms of what it is that we pray. Is that this is something that's both present and future, and we'll think about this a little bit further on. But the way the Bible understands the coming of the kingdom of God, it's a bit like, you know, you probably learn in geography classes that apparently the world is made up of these giant plates, these tectonic plates um, on the continents that are constantly moving. Some of them are pulling apart from each other, creating great... Um, crevices in the Earth's crust, and some of them are colliding with each other, but at such a slow rate of centimeters um, per year that you would never really feel it. But as they do, one plate slides under another into the crust of the Earth and melts away into becoming molten rock, while the other ascends and sometimes becomes becomes mountains and high peaks and all kinds of things. And normally. This happens so imperceptibly and slowly that you, it, you're talking about something that's taking place over thousands of years rather than, uh, rather than uh, months and weeks. Occasionally it breaks out in, in earthquakes and uh, all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff happening um, on the surface of the earth. And it's, if you want to take that and apply that to what's happening with the kingdom of God, it's a similar thing. That when Christ, when he won, when he went to the cross and he rose from the dead and he poured out his spirit on his church and began to birth his kingdom in new power, it was like the movement of a great tectonic plate beginning to crush and submerge another one as the enemy's kingdom sinks into the heart of the earth and disappears for good. And occasionally in history, you get these moments of earthquakes, of great shattering uh, power as God uh, reveals his power in revival, or as we see the opposite, we see persecution and the church is crushed and shrunken like is happening in Iraq at the moment. But it, in any case, what we're seeing is the collision of two kingdoms that is happening just slowly, slowly, slowly. There is um, a series of history books written by a pastor, actually, for 2,000 years of Christ's power. I think it's a brilliant title because it captures what it is that we're thinking about when we're thinking about the slow progress, but the steady, the steady, unstoppable progress of the kingdom of God. So that 2,000 years on from when Christ announced the coming of his kingdom, we're looking at billions of people who now call him Lord, and churches that number into the tens and tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands worldwide. This is something unstoppable in its momentum and its movement. And that is the present reality of what we are thinking about when we pray, your kingdom come. But there's also a future cataclysmic end-time reality. Do you know in the New Testament that the, there's just a couple of surviving pieces of Aramaic that were obviously spoken. So an example is when Jesus says, Lema, Lema, Sabachthani. 
um, on, the, on the cross. So when he says, uh, Talitha Kumi, the little girl, the little girl arrives. But one of them, the only one that survives in um, the letters from the New Testament, is this little word, Maranatha. And it just means, come, Lord. Come, Lord. And I think the reason why it's written there in the New Testament, bear in mind it's, it's a Greek document and here is a, an Aramaic word, is because it become a kind of, it just slip off the tongue. Just like you guys speak, say the word hallelujah, um, which is a Hebrew word. It becomes so second nature to the early Christians to pray this prayer, Maranatha, that they, they wouldn't think of bothering translating it into Greek, which is a common tongue. But what I'm trying to say to you is that for the early Christians to pray, your kingdom come. They have one eye on the work of God that is taking place right now. The slow but steady progress of the kingdom. It's the aggregate of every good thing that God is doing in the world. Every individual who's coming to know him. Every marriage that is spared and saved. Every child that is, 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 is uh, rescued from a life of abandonment and brought into a home or everything that God is doing to further his kingdom in the world, every small act. That's one eye in the prayer. But the other eye is looking ahead to a day when Christ is going to come in power and all the groaning of evil and suffering in the world is going to be wiped away in one spirit. Pray your kingdom comes to have a mind on both of these realities as we pray. To have a groaning sense of God, what can you do here and now? And a groaning passion that Jesus will come again and put the earth to rights. I think that's pretty much what it is we're praying. But I want you to now consider three things that I would say are kind of preconditions for, for being able to pray I remember reading in um, a book by Eugene Peterson, he's an American pastor, retired now, he wrote um, the message translation of the Bible. And a real prophet in the way he writes, he really cuts to the heart. And I don't know if I thoroughly agree with him, but you'll, you'll understand the point here. When he said, the thing about prayer is that you usually do it too casually. He said, so often you start a meeting, we, we point to someone and say, will you pray? He said, you can't just point to someone and say, well, you pray. Because to enter into prayer is to come before the throne of the living God. And they may not have ready their heart to do so. He says, every day we sit down for our meal and we say grace and it just trips off the tongue. And we're not even aware of what it is that we're doing when we pray to the almighty living God. I think the same is true of this prayer. Probably for most of us, we pray that every day in school assemblies. I did growing up, pray your kingdom come. And I had barely an awareness of what it is I'm praying. But I think that there is a sense in which, in order to pray this, maybe a few things true. The first is that you have to have an actual desire, an actual desire for God's rule and reign to come on the earth. And I mean that first and foremost at a personal level. It's easier to say the words, your kingdom come, than to say the words, I repent, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. Because we divorce the two realities, don't we? God's kingdom being something out there and not you changing. But to pray your kingdom come has to begin with a desire that God's kingdom should conquer 
your heart first of all. It has to begin with a desire that God, by His Spirit, would come and deal with and uproot every impulse and lust and, 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 and every sort of part of your flesh which wants to pull away against God and constantly conquer you by His Spirit. It has to begin with a desire to surrender every part of your life to God and His kingdom, or else what does the prayer mean? If it doesn't begin there, I'm not sure that the kingdom come at some point divorced from the realities of your day-to-day existence. And so, inherently in this way, the kingdom come is an invitation for God to, to change your life. To deal with you. To uproot every, every interest against you. And to bring you into more sweet communion with the Father. Now that would be something that would it would crush us and weigh us down. Because I can never pray this because my heart is always pulled in different directions. I'm, I'm a hypocrite. And I think if, if we're honest, every one of us would say that. But praise God that we come back to the cross. We pray this on our knees, knowing the grace and the kindness of a Savior who has wiped away our sin. It's the only way we can pray your kingdom come is at the foot of the cross. And then it's the design that God's kingdom would also invade the world. But friends, it must begin with that desire. So that's the first thing I'm saying. To pray this, we have to have a desire for God's rule and reign. And that has to begin in us. Second thing I would say is this. You must have a belief that it is God's purpose to do this. And I'm thinking a little bit more on the grander scale now. If you're pessimistic about this world and God's intentions for it, I'm not sure you could ever really pray this in faith. I was talking a little bit earlier about this idea of the two kingdoms being like tectonic plates, gradually, one grinding the other down and crushing the other. And when you look at the, the teaching of the New Testament about the kingdom of God, have you ever heard this expression about the now and the not yet? The reason why that phrase is used is because whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, he uses different tenses. Sometimes he says the kingdom's come. Sometimes he says the kingdom is coming. And sometimes he says the kingdom is yet to come. So in order to be to do it justice to what Jesus says about the kingdom, we have to understand that there are things that are happening now and things that will never happen until Christ returns. And that we live somehow in the balance of two worlds with this tension in two different directions. And if on the one hand, as is true of a lot of Christians, we push everything into the future, all the, the change and transformation that, that God wants to bring about in the world, we think about as something which will come with Christ's second coming. This is true of certain types of Christians. They think that basically the, the way they understand the world, you understand it a bit like the Titanic, there's something it's going down, it is sinking, and our job is just to grab as many people as possible and chuck them in the lifeboats before the whole thing is submerged and frozen in the depths of the ocean. And when you have that kind of a pessimistic view of the world, all you do as Christians is think about the gospel and people getting saved. But your gospel becomes a little bit smaller because it doesn't really impact the world out there. It doesn't impact culture. It doesn't impact society. It doesn't impact your day-to-day job. 
It doesn't impact really particularly to a great extent even your family life and such. It is just about whether people are in or whether they're out. Because the whole thing is going to burn up anyway, so why bother investing? That's one extreme. Where you push it all into the future, say, no, we're waiting for heaven, or waiting for Christ to come again, and this world is going to burn. The other extreme, there is a whole mass of people who call themselves Christians who have, to a massive extent, forgotten what it means to to have even a desire for people to get saved because they think the kingdom is something that happens here and now and we're not waiting for an end time salvation. We're not, we don't really have our mind on heaven or anything of the kind. Really the kingdom is, is God doing justice in the world here and now. Society changing, the church doing good works. And when that's your focus, the church ends up involved in politics and charity work and all kinds of things. But the one thing the church soon quickly forgets is that we're here to actually see people saved. That we want to see people coming from darkness into light. And that it's their ultimate destiny that counts, that matters in the end. So to pray this prayer, you have to somehow hold in tension these two great realities. You don't want to have, put it all on the now and think that God's, this world is it. Because we're definitely waiting for something better. The New Testament is full of that expectation. But neither do you want to put it all in the future and have a, a pessimistic view of this world. Because if you do, you wouldn't be able to pray your kingdom come with anything like faith that God's going to do anything in the world. Your view of what Christ is here to do is going to be diminished, it's going to be shrunk. And you'll have an anemic and, and shrunk faith about God's work. This is something we've been talking about in the previous week when we were looking at kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We also have a profound optimism about what God is doing in this world. It doesn't discount the need for people ultimately to get saved, but it thinks this world is something precious and worth investing in. This city is worth praying for. My neighbours are worth loving and blessing. My street is worth me giving sacrificial service and attention to. And so, because we believe God is at work in this world, and he's bringing about change. And the things that we were, I was reading at the beginning, in, in Isaiah 11, where it talks about the rule of the Messiah, and how he's going to bring peace on the earth. These are realities that, we can see an increasing measure as the influence of Christ increases in the world. So I say, in order to pray this, we have to believe that it's God's intention and will to do it, right? And the last thing I want to say is this. That in order to pray this prayer, you have to have faith that your prayers can make a difference. Of all the lines in the Lord's Prayer, this is probably the one which has the biggest scope, you can say. Because to pray your kingdom come is to pray on a level that is far beyond even what I can imagine. It is to touch the full extent of God's desires and purposes for his creation. And in view of the enormity of that prayer, I think it's hard to pray that way. I should believe that your prayers make a difference. 
It's hard to pray for London, isn't it? It's hard to pray for Britain. It's hard to pray for the world. And you think, I'm just able, an individual. What difference do my prayers make? How can I pray the prayer of your kingdom come and have it make any difference at the global, national, or even just the city-wide scale? But Jesus told us to pray for this. He said that he told his disciples to pray in a simple way, but he said, your prayers ought to have this, this global dimension to them. Your kingdom come. And you need to pray in faith. You need to pray believing that God wants to do this. How on earth do we pray that way? And have the faith that your prayers can make a difference? Well, just look at your Bible. Individuals whose prayers change the course of cities and nations. You remember how in Genesis, Abraham intercedes on behalf of, of people, of a city. And in the end, he has God's agreement that God wouldn't destroy the city if there were enough righteous people. But you can see how he has this influence over an entire city in praying to God. Moses prays and intercedes. When God is ready to destroy the Israelites, who are numbering in the millions by this point, Moses prays for an entire people, and as a result, God intervenes and saves them and has mercy on them. And you could say, you could say that, well, look, it's hard and fair to compare me to Moses or Abraham, to compare my prayers to, the, to men of such stature in, in, in the history of God's people. Do you remember how James talks about prayer at the end of his letter in James chapter 5. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he's writing this to ordinary Christians and he's, he's wanting them to, to listen up and take note. Your prayers make a difference. And he says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Some translations put it, Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a man with all his weaknesses. <laughs> Elijah was a man with, who was just like us. It wasn't that he was any, he was any more special than us in his prayer. This is what James is trying to say. Elijah was one of the great prophets. Yes, he was. But that's, that's not the point. He was just a man at the end of the day. He wasn't the son of God. Either. And his prayers affected the course of an entire nation. And friends, I think that as Christians praying the Lord's Prayer, we ought to have that sense of the mightiness of what we do. Mary, Queen of Scots, had a great opponent whose name was John Knox. John Knox was a preacher, a Scottish preacher, who was preaching for the doctrines of the Reformation, Protestant doctrines. And Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Catholic queen, and they were at loggerheads. And she said, I fear the prayers of that man more than all the armies of the English. I think that when you get on your knees and you pray, your kingdom you're doing something mighty and beyond even your ability to imagine. 
in the book of Revelation, the way that prayers are depicted are as incense rising to God. And there's a sense in which our prayers ascend. And there's a point in, in Revelation chapter 5 where there are these great bowls that have reached capacity. In other words, the, they're full of the prayers of the saints, at which point the angels begin to tip the bowls. And the effects of, of those prayers begin to be felt. I think sometimes in the sovereignty of God, the specific things we pray for for small bowls that only need to be filled with small amount of faith and a small prayer. Some of the things we pray for are enormous bowls that require the prayers of of millions, tens of millions of God's people, the people all through the centuries, as they fill and fill and fill. I think the point of what they're saying is not to say such a thing. Every Christian prayer counts. And to go back to right to where I started, the kingdom of God advances by force and forceful men take hold of it. The church, this church, will advance by the prayers of forceful people more than anything else. And there's great reward in that. If you think about the rewards that God promises in a terrible for us for our works in the world, for our obedience to Christ. But listen, I think that is supremely true of our prayers. Because prayer is the work that you do on behalf of the kingdom which no one else sees. Jesus said it very specifically, didn't he? Lock your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And he said that your father will see your prayers and reward you. This is a duty of every Christian, and it's something we need to be engaged with with increasing intensity fervency. I want to invite you now to stand and listen. Dan's going to lead us in our, our last song. just now, um, before we, we sing this last song, why don't we just um, why don't we just all lift our voices to God? And I think the right way to respond to what we're doing in looking at the Lord's Prayer is to cry out for God, to God for help to become people of prayer. Pray that you might be able to pray. It's like when the guy said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. In the sense in which we have to come to God for the very resources we need in order to come to God. We have to ask him to pay the bill. It's like wanting to travel somewhere internationally and asking the person you're traveling to to pay for your ticket. That's how it works when we come to God. We come to him in such abject weakness that not only do we need to pray, but we need to pray for the ability to pray. So why don't we just lift our voices together for a minute or so and ask God for his power. Ask God to do this in us. Ask God to put this in as a foundation block in this church that we'd be first and foremost a people of prayer before anything else, and then we're going to close with the final song. Let's all pray together, shall we?